The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Turn to the book of Amos, chapter 7. This is weird teaching on a Wednesday night. It's been a while, but uh, I felt bad for Sam. Um, I was the one that said, hey, I think we're going to do the book of Amos next, and uh, I did the intro and then bailed. (laughs) What? Yeah. Oh, are there any junior high kids here? You guys are dismissed if there are. No. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, So anyway, I felt bad for Sam because uh, I said, hey, we're going to do this, and it's going to be a challenge because there's not as nearly as many resources available for the book of Amos as there are, you know, for other books, but this will be really fun and really applicable. We're going to do this, and so then I did the intro and then was gone. So Sam has basically had to carry the torch on this for a while. He came to me last week and he was like, dude, I'm ready to be done with the book of Amos. So he dared me to finish the entire book tonight. And he's going to be really discouraged to find out we're not even going to finish a whole chapter. But um, that's okay. I teach next week too. Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. We've all heard that phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. Every picture tells a story. Um, There's details in pictures, and we learn things from pictures that we just can't always get. Um, I don't know about you guys, I tend to be a really visual learner. Um, Even sometimes when I'm studying things, just writing things out and seeing the words as I'm writing out uh, can actually enhance my ability to remember things. And um, I love being able to do things like certain Bible stories that we're doing. If we were on location, so to speak, when we were in Israel last year, I love being able to bring those things to bear for you guys. There's something about actually seeing the places where these things took place that that really enhances um, our understanding and our ability to kind of picture what's going on. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, God is going to give Amos, in the text that we're covering tonight, three distinct pictures. There'll be a couple of more coming up in the next chapters. But three distinct pictures, three distinct images that God's going to use to teach Amos about the judgment that he's been warning them has been coming all along. Um, There's going to be three visions given in the first nine verses, and in each one they're prefaced by, this is what the Lord showed me. In verse 1, verse 4, this is what the Lord showed me. Verse 7, this is what He, the Lord, has shown me. And in this section, there is a continual, as there has been really throughout the whole book, there is a continual emphasis on the sovereignty of God. This, this idea that the sovereign Lord is in control, that there is a master, a Lord that is doing these things. Um, the, the word for, or the phrase sovereign Lord appears nine times in the first 100 verses of chapters 1 through 6, but then the phrase sovereign Lord is going to appear, appear 11 times in the next 47. So there, it's going to be emphasized to a greater degree in the next couple of chapters here. This section also emphasizes the security of true believers. That we're going to see as we move forward going into this next section of Scripture that just as real as the judgment that's coming and as determined as the sovereign Lord is to deal with sin, to pour His wrath out on sin, He is just as committed to saving His people, that God's people are secure no matter what the calamities might be. And then we're also going to be dealing in this section, in this text tonight in particular, with the, uh, the mystery of prayer. And the reality that God chooses to work in response to prayer. So let's dive right into it and we'll look at the first vision that's given to Amos. is in verse 1 through 3. It's the vision of the locusts. 
It says in verse 1, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Now, a little historical background to help us understand what we're talking about here. Um, God is speaking to, and Amos is speaking to, a largely agricultural people. So a vision regarding locusts and crops is something that is going to be very relevant, something they're definitely, their ears are going to perk up and they're going to listen to. It's going to make sense to them. And what he does is he gives this terrifying picture of these locusts that are going to come through and just utter devastation over the land. All the grass of the field, these locusts are going to wipe out all of the food that's there. And we're told when this happens, and the timing of this is really important. Because it says that this was when the latter growth was beginning to sprout, and it was the latter growth that was after the king's mowings. The king's mowings is sort of a weird, ancient way of saying the tax growth. When, when the farmers were growing their actual crops early on, the first batch of it would be actually mowed down and given as sort of a tax to the kings in that particular area. And so that came off first. Much more important was what was referred to as the latter growings. The big harvest is what would follow after that. And the latter growing in particular, the last harvest of the season was the one that got the people through the winter. So that was a really important harvest. If you didn't get latter growth, if you didn't get a big harvest at the end of the year, that was a bad thing, and it was very bad omen for the next part of the year. And if the food stores for the winter are gone, and if you're talking about this idea that these locusts are going to come through and destroy the land before the latter growth, then they're absolutely vulnerable to famine. There's nothing that's going to preserve them as they go through the next year. Nothing would protect them. And so God says to them that this vision is coming. And then Amos responds in verse 2. He says, When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Now this is interesting. We're going to see this pattern happen all three times. That in this, the sovereign Lord is going to speak about this judgment that's coming. And, And it's done by the hand of the Lord. We see in the text, it says that the Lord God showed that he was forming the locusts. And we've, I know Sam's talked on this. I've listened to his teachings about some of this stuff in the last few weeks. This idea is really difficult sometimes for us to wrestle with. The idea that God would be the one behind this difficult thing that's going. And, and that's really hard for us to wrestle with sometimes. Um, and it's especially hard for people in general, in many cases, to wrestle with the idea of God doing something in form of judgment against sin. Um, It just is the reality. The world around us does not like hearing that God does such a thing. The Bible, however, is absolutely unapologetic about it. It speaks with, it is not ashamed at all to speak about the fact that God is moving against sin, that that is part of God's character. In particular, it speaks also not just of God dealing with it, but a much more unpopular way of speaking about it is to speak of God's wrath. And in our culture, we want to talk about God's love. God's grace, God's provision, God's protection. We don't like to talk about God's wrath so much. But the scriptures make it really clear the wrath of God is an absolute part of his character. It is a righteous wrath. It is a holy wrath. But it is absolutely part of his character. And it's important for us to understand that because if there's no wrath, then we really don't have need of mercy. There's there's nothing that threatens us that would cause us to need mercy from God if there's not reality with regard to God's wrath. 
So, so we need to understand these are balanced portions of the absolute character of God. A God who isn't angry doesn't need to respond with grace or mercy. So it's important that we understand that. Um, but even more so, just avoid that tendency as we've talked about before. Mankind has had a history for, for the history of mankind, to, to want to reform God into man's image, though we men were created in the image of God. We want to spin that around. And so we want to talk about the characteristics that we like, the things that we're comfortable with, or what we would like God to look at. And we don't want to go there. We just don't want to go there. As difficult as maybe unpopular as some characteristics of God's nature might be, even in the public or the world around us, um, we, we dare not try to reshape God into our own image. We need to be able to stand in trust and in faith that God, even in his wrath, is merciful and is good. That his wrath, as we'll see in a minute, is not some sort of flying off the handle. It is different than man's wrath. It is different than man's anger. It is a righteous and good and necessary part of who he is. Um, in, in fact, just this week we had a, a gal in our church. I mean, you guys know Robert and Pam Russell. And Pam's mother um, has been sick for a little while. And she went home. She had a stroke last week, got sent home. She was put on hospice. And this morning, actually, 4.30 a.m., um, Pam's mother went to be with Jesus. I think that we should find comfort in the wrath of God against sin every single time someone dies. Because they're not designed to. The original design for us was not to fall and to have to deal with grief, to deal with death, to deal with weakness, to deal with decaying bodies. All of those things are a result of sin. And so there should be a certain degree of comfort knowing that God is wrathful against sin when we understand what it is that sin does to us. Um, but without the mercy part of it, then that leads to some necessarily scary places, does it not? Um, so we need to trust the idea that God's wrath and God's mercy are inseparable parts of his character. And we, we shouldn't focus on one and neglect the other because there is benefit and blessing to both of them. And God is not, as is, Alistair Begg always says this, and I love it, he says, God is not a cosmic jellyfish. When God sees sin, he's not an invertebrate, wait, Doug, invertebrate doesn't have a backbone, right? Vertebrae does have a backbone. I haven't been in science in a while. I just had to check. So God is not an invertebrate. In other words, he's not without backbone when he sees offenses. God it deals with sin. But at the same time, the God who forms the locusts is the God who Amos turns to for mercy. The same hand that creates the locust, the same hand that deals with sin, is the same hand, as we might say, that was nailed to the cross to provide mercy for us. And so this same hand is the one who Amos turns to, and he is patient and gracious. In verse 3, it says, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. So Amos comes to the Lord and says, Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. You, Lord, are so great and so powerful. And even these locusts that are coming, it will wipe us out. We are so small and so insignificant. Lord, please show mercy. And God says, I will relent. Then we see more coming on this relent. We see this pattern happen again. Look at the next picture beginning in verse 4. The first picture, the first vision was one dealing with locusts. The second one is fire. Verse 4 says, This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Now again, there's some, some word in there that gives us an idea of what we're talking about. The, the, the first vision, the first um, uh, uh, 
judgment, I guess you could say, that comes through in these visions is locusts. It's a natural thing. If locusts come through, the, it's a very natural thing that God's put together that they're seeing coming. This fire is not just some regional fire. It's not just a fire in one area. This is a supernatural, global, massive fire, unlike something that we could start with matches and some wood. And the reason that we know this is because it says that it devoured the great deep. The great deep is a word that the, or a phrase that the Bible uses to refer to everything. From core to surface, the great deep. You see it beginning in the very book of Genesis when the, the, the word talks about how the spirit moved across the waters, the great deep. It's the same word that's used. So we're talking about the firmament, firmament, struggling tonight, the world. Let's just say the world. That's a lot easier, right? Not a good Earth Day message here. Not a good Earth Day message. But this is what's going on here. This is a global, catastrophic, supernatural fire that is going to wipe out everything that's there. So Amos again turns to the Lord for mercy in verse 5 and says, And then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this and said, This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So already we see that it belongs to the nature of God that God deals with sin. We agree with that? But in the same time, it also belongs to the nature of God that God is gracious towards sinners. We see this pattern going on. Now, first of all, with regards to God's dealing with sin, again, this is not, a righteous, this is not some sort of flying off the handle. Part of God's programmed plan response to sin is wrath. Um, the, the best example I can think of this in, in the New Testament, um, in the life of Jesus, we see when Jesus comes into the temple and he deals with the money changers. You guys remember that story? The Bible says that Jesus comes into the temple, it's near Passover, it's right before Passover, and people are coming in there and they're being completely ripped off by this market, this bazaar as they referred to it, um, that had been established by the high priest in those days. It was named even after him. This massive market's going on. So they're ripping people off. They're saying, okay, you all use these Roman currencies, but if you're paying your tithes and offerings when you come into the temple, you have to use our money, not the Roman currencies. But don't worry, we got plenty, we'll just do it at it was just these horrific exchange rates. Um, they had animals. And so when you would bring your sacrifice to the altar, these priests would inspect your animals and they were basically pre-programmed to not let anything through. They would say, I, I know you brought this sheep from home and this is what you were planning on offering for your family's sacrifice, but you know what? We, we see some blemishes here. And in fact, um, we're told by historians such as Josephus that some of these priests were taught how to recognize blemishes that would appear later. So there's not even a blemish showing yet on the animal that you're brought in, but they would say, we can't take this one day, it's going to have a spot. In, in other words, they're just completely ripping off people. And if there's anything that God has a problem with, it is when people come between him and his children, just like a dad would with his own children. And so here's Passover, this this. This massive feast that God ordains that you come to that is supposed to point to the celebration and this future deliverance. This, this is where forgiveness is to come from. This is celebrating the fact that God had set them free and all these people are getting ripped off. And Jesus comes in and he sees this. And this would be akin to coming into the mall on Christmas. I mean, absolutely packed with people. And when Jesus sees all of this stuff, he gets angry. Not fly off the handle angry righteously sinless angry. We would all agree that Jesus was without sin. Amen? But he sees this and he's angry. So angry that the Bible tells us that he made or fashioned a whip. 
And the more I think about that, it almost cracks me up. Think about that. That means Jesus sees what's going on. He gets angry. He decides, I'm going to get a whip and I'm going to drive some people out. Then he goes and gets stuff and starts building the whip. And the whole time he's building it, he's got plenty of opportunity to go, you know, maybe this is too much. Maybe this is too much. This is going to be interpreted as like really angry. It's too violent. And I, I'm going to be known as this peaceful leader for years to come. I don't think I should do this. And, and does not, nope, this is exactly what is needed at this moment. Fashions a whip and drives everyone out. I mean, can you imagine someone doing that in the mall? driving everyone out. And yet they did. There was something about the way he went about it and his demeanor that people knew he meant business. It's not flying off the handle. It's calculated and part of the program of God to deal with sin in a wrathful way. And so that's important to us to remember because we tend to view wrath as something where we just sort of boom and then we just explode. That's not the case. It is controlled and is part of the very nature of God. But at the same time, we see that just as God is completely determined to deal with sin, he is just also as determined to preserve and spare his people. This is what he does over and over. We see this, that God's wrath and his determination to spare his people are equally part of his character. And this is tough sometimes to grapple with um, because it, it seems as if these two things would be in conflict with one another because the people he's preserving are people who are sinning who are thereby guilty and, and deserving of his wrath. And so there's, I am perfectly committed to dealing with sin through righteous wrath, but I'm also completely committed to preserving and sparing my people. And so the way the scriptures are written, it, it's sort of God's way of accommodating us by using language that looks as if these two natures are in conflict with one another, when in reality, in one of the great mysteries of, of all the scriptures, they're in perfect harmony. And the place that we see this is in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ on the cross, we see the wrath of God poured out but in a manner that it creates the venue by which God's mercy is poured out on his people. It's, it's an insane and crazy and unbelievable combination of God's wrath and God's mercy in one instance through one man. And so you can see even in that very thing, if we take God's wrath out of the equation, then the sin that Jesus is dying for isn't dealt with. So, so we, we need God's wrath. Does that make sense? As scary as it might be. But without grace at the same time, then God's wrath is really bad news for us as well. So, so don't discard one or the other. Don't be ashamed of one or the other. The scripture is not. It's completely unapologetic about God's wrath being part of his character. And we should be okay too because it leads us to the cross. And without God's wrath, there is no need for mercy. The other thing that we see here is the scriptures talk about how God relenting, that God relented. This is what I'm going to do, and then there's this prayer to him, and then God changes. Now, I don't, I don't want to go into a whole, you know, Calvinistic, Arminian, uh, did God change his mind, or, or anything like that. I, I don't want to get that detailed about going down this road tonight. That's something we can maybe have coffee about and banter later. The one thing that I know that I know that I know is that God has chosen to move and react and deal with his people in response to prayer. It's part of God's program. That this relenting that takes place, even the grace and forgiveness that is given to us is often given in response to the prayers of his people. We see this in other places, not just here. You guys know Genesis 18, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Remember, God comes to Abraham, says, this is what I'm going to do. We will tell him what we're about to do. We're going into Sodom and Gomorrah. This judgment's coming. We're going to destroy them. And so what does Abraham start doing? He starts doing this like crazy bartering thing with God. He's like, God, surely you would not destroy those city. I mean, what if there's 50 righteous people living in those cities? Would you destroy them with the rest of them? Surely you wouldn't do that. And God says, okay, if there's 50 people in that city that are righteous, I will spare them. Now, now, we know the Bible goes on to tell us later that none are righteous, no, not one. Um, but, but this is lots, or Abraham's looking out for his family, and there's lots down there, and he's working, and maybe even he realizes like 50, oh, I started way too high. Okay, 40. And you guys know this whole bartering thing goes all the way down to, I think, 10 is the last number that they come to in this case. But, but what we do see is that while God does choose to rule the universe, he could choose, I should say, to completely rule the universe completely on only his decrees, his directions, and his determination. But God has somehow chosen to interact with men and even somehow affect the things that God does in the world around us through prayer with his people. And that's incredible. What leader with that kind of resource do any of us have access to? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on, is Michaela here tonight? Okay. I don't know if you guys know this. Michaela Ulrich, sweetheart of a gal, goes to our church here, right? She somehow, through a, a turn of events that I don't even yet understand, and maybe I should have got her permission before I talk about it, but she's, a, she's sweet. She'll forgive me. She's now a country music DJ on The Wolf local radio, right? So today, I'm listening to country music, listening to Michaela having a good old time on there, and I send her a text message. Hey, play this one Keith Urban song. It's got good guitar. She responds back to me, it's all pre-programmed on the computer. I can't do anything about it. So think about this. She's the DJ. She's in charge of that, and I'm, I know her. I have a text message I can send to her. It did me no good whatsoever. No Keith Urban was played after that. And yet the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord, has provided mechanisms and avenues of communication, not just that we might talk to him, but that he responds. I mean, can you wrap your head around that for even just a moment? I don't think we can, because I think if we could, we would do it. I don't mean wrap your head around it, I mean we would pray, and most of us don't. I mean, we pray here and there. But I've never met anyone that says they pray as much as they should. I've never met that person. If you're here, you should come up and teach now. Um, I've never met that. This semester in school, I studied prayer and other spiritual disciplines. Prayer is a spiritual discipline, but even when Western Seminary was setting up the course, they felt the need to make sure prayer and other spiritual disciplines. And the vast majority of our time was spent on the discipline of prayer. Why? Because it's that important and that neglected. And so we spend an infinite amount of time studying, reading, devoting our time to prayer. And the reality is prayer changes things. Again, I don't want to go into that. Well, does it really change? How does that work? Did God already know what he was doing and he was just drawing you in? How does that stuff work? I don't know. In the scripture, God says he's doing something. Man prays and says, will you relent? God says, okay, I'll relent. It would appear to me that somehow in some supernatural working, prayer changes things. Would you agree? I mean, why else would God say, come pray for those who are sick? That they may be what? Healed. So it changed something for them. You guys know Bob Middleton, our pastor friend who's up in uh, the Dalles, Oregon? He came down last year or sometime, and he taught, and he talked to you guys about his battles with cancer. 
and what he's been dealing with. And at that time, his cancer was in remission. Please pray for Bob. It is not in remission anymore. And, and he's having a tough season. But he was talking about these group of pastors that he's friends with and that they get together and they have breakfast and do these different things there. And, and he, said, he said, it's really interesting. While I would agree with the pastor friends of mine who tend to emphasize the sovereignty of God, when I was dealing with this stuff and when cancer really came, the people I wanted to talk about were the ones that were almost the just full-on Pentecostal, let's pray for you, because no one else would even pray for me. He's like, I, I know you believe in the sovereignty of God. I know you believe God is in control, but I got cancer, man. Will you just pray for me? And then people would pray things like, well, Lord, if it's your will to take Bob from us, then we'll be okay with that. And he's like, will you stop saying that, please? Just pray that I be healed. And look, that's not a selfish prayer request. We are ordered by the sovereign God to make that prayer. So why don't we pray? I mean, do we really believe, do we really understand the reality that prayer changes things? Why don't we do it? I think the, one, of, one of the primary reasons is because we don't really, it's unbelief. Like we know it, but we don't really know it. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily come, I mean, everybody prays when cancer comes, you know what I mean? I mean, just in regular, do you pray for even daily things that are going on in your life, or do you think this is stuff we need to handle? God is way too busy. He's clearly got a bigger agenda. Um, you know, of course we, we do. We just, we'll take care of this. We'll go to God for the big stuff. But I wonder how much time the little things just completely ruin our day and preoccupy our time because we just didn't take the time to go to the Lord in prayer. We didn't believe he cared. We didn't believe that God was involved in those details of our lives. We certainly didn't believe God would actually change anything, so why set aside the time for it when we could be busy rolling our sleeves up and doing it? Which leads to the next one is probably self-reliance is another reason that we don't pray. So I had to write a paper about prayer, and the whole premise of my paper about prayer was that I don't pray. (laughs) Like, enough. I, I do pray. Don't fire me. But I mean enough, and this is what I said, when you feel like you've got things under control, when you feel like, I know how to do this, writing a Bible study, like, I know how to do that. God gifted me and gave me the ability to be able to do that, and too often, what would end up happening is, I'll trust in the abilities or the talents or the, your brain or the resources, whatever it is that God's given me, we'll put our trust in those things, and then at the end go, oh, God, I'm about to teach. Do me a favor. Will you bless this Bible study, Lord? Will you just speak through this thing? Will you just didn't take the time to go and actually decide, hey, maybe God didn't want me to say any of that stuff in the first place. But that can happen. If you're a really good engineer when projects come your way, how much time do you spend praying about your project before you start the project? Or you just go, I got this. Or, Or whatever your thing might be. I think a lot of times we function as you might say functional atheists. We will take on things in front of us because we got this, we don't need God here, and we don't really believe he's gonna actually do anything anyway. And so we can function in the same way someone who doesn't even believe God exists can do. And a lot of times it's because God gifted us. It's almost like the curse. The more gifted you are, the, probably the more tempted you will be to not rely on God. Maybe that's why the scriptures talk about how it's so difficult for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because in this earth, they can really get a lot of things taken care of just with a checkbook. But those who struggle, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because they, they're at an end of themselves. They can't do this since they have nowhere else to go. That's an incredible benefit that we don't take advantage. We pray 
for the providence to not have to be poor in spirit is actually the way we tend to pray. And then the last one I would say is just lack of discipline, which is a huge part of many of our lives, at least in seasons. To just say, I, I need to carve out the time in my day to pray. And that has been, for me, the biggest benefit of those classes that I just took this year at Western Seminary because part of what we did was not just studying about prayer and studying about how Jesus prayed and all those kind of things, but in all of these classes, we were required to, at the beginning, put together like prayer plans and accountability and all these different things and actually live this stuff out through the semester. And then a lot of our assignments at the end were kind of reporting on what had been done and how things worked. And so uh, I'll be honest with you, when I, when I went into the class at that time, I was in that season that we've been in before where it's like, okay, I need to be in the office at eight. I'm seven miles away from the office. A washcloth will do my hair so I could get up at... 742 and I'll be fine. Like I was in that season. Or, or I would get to the office even if I got there early enough and there would be inevitably things that didn't get done yesterday or this thing, ding, beep, all those kind of things. I don't, it's like Pavlov's dog, ding. That's me for sure. That's why I killed Facebook. But um, so what would happen is, is that if I don't carve out that time early and then discipline myself to shut off the phone, to get away from everybody else, it just doesn't happen. And so the, one of the best things that happened to me after studying these spiritual disciplines this term was getting back into the discipline of getting here really early, really early, before anyone shows up. Kathy, don't start coming to the office early, okay? This, that's my time. No, I'm just kidding. But really disciplining myself to come in early and get on my knees and pray and read. It's a discipline. And the vast majority of mornings, I'll be honest with you, when the alarm clock goes off, I don't want to get up and do it. I'd rather sleep. I like to sleep. But I am so thankful for the season that, I am, that I'm in right now. There, there's a joy associated with that that is important. So if you're in a season right now where you're not that, and there are definitely some of you in this room that aren't, let me encourage you, don't, and this is not a guilt trip, this is you are missing out on joy because of the lack of discipline and spending time with the Lord in the morning. And, and, and if you're anything like me and you don't get it done in the morning, it's not gonna happen. We could go into praying without ceasing and disciplining ourselves to pray throughout the day, but just for today's purposes, man, tomorrow morning, get up and spend some time with the Lord I beg you, and, and this was a quote that I used in one of my papers that has just haunted me since I came across it. It's by a guy named Wesley Duell in a book named A Blaze for God, and he said this, you will never be a greater leader than your prayers. You may have some apparent successes without a strong prayer life. However, the eternal value of it and your eternal reward for it will be heavily dependent on your prayer life. All success, apart from this spiritual dimension, is a house built on sand. I read that and thought, I don't like Wesley Duell. <clears throat> but that is a haunting and absolutely true passage. And I talked about it with our staff, like how many sandcastles have we built? How many things have we done that look like apparent successes and we never went to the Lord in advance? Hmm. Man, may we pray. So vision number two is that the supernatural and a fire, God again relents. And then we have this third way. Any builders here? Any contractors here? Engineers? Plumb line? Does anybody know what that is? Let's talk about it. Verse seven. And this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line and with a plumb line in his hand. 
And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac will be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, a plumb line, for those of you that don't know, a plumb line or in surveying, I did land surveying for many, many years. My dad was a land surveyor, so that pretty much made me a land surveyor on Saturday mornings, whether I liked it or not growing up. And one of the things you do a lot for land surveying is they would use this thing, it's called a plumb bob. And it's a heavy pointed item. It's got a really small point on it and then it's held up by a string. And you would use it when you're land surveying above like property corners and things like that. And then they use those instruments. And I still don't know what they're looking through when they do that stuff. But they look at something and in the end you get maps. So whatever that is, the plumb bob is important. Um, Another thing you might do, um, I also did, uh, when I was in college, I was a tennis instructor. And once a year, every year, was the worst week of the year. We had to resurface the clay tennis courts. We had clay surface tennis courts there in North Carolina. And you would resurface them, and you would pull all the lines up, which are basically tape on a clay source. You'd pull them all out. They'd put the new clay down, spread it out, get it nice and even. And then you had to go and reinstall these lines. And it was brutal. You got sand all in your knees. Your knees were just raw by the end of the week. It was brutal. And you would use plumb lines to make sure that the tape, I mean, the lines on a tennis court, it's pretty important that they're straight, right? So you would use plumb lines. So you would set the corners and that would be the guide so that you could make sure that your line went right along with the plumb line. Does that make sense? Um, You use it maybe to hang pictures. You might use it to make sure a wall is straight and true. But a plumb line is basically, this is the standard. This is what you're shooting for. This is what's required. And then the work that you're doing is to fall in line with the plumb line. That makes sense? So here's God saying that he has showed the Lord standing beside a wall that has been built with a plumb line. So the wall was built with a plumb line. In other words, it was straight and true when this wall was originally built. But now he's standing there with this plumb line in his hand as if to say, now let's see if it still measures up. Let's see if the things that are being done still measure up, fall in line with that which I had designed, that which I created with this plumb line here to see if it was still straight and correct. And so the idea here is that God is talking to the people of Israel and he's saying, I created you, I formed you, now let's see if you fall in line with that which I laid out at your birth. So what is God's plumb line? You might say there's two strands to the cord that hold that together. The first is redemption, or you might say grace. I mean, a lot of people still don't realize this. They think the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. It's not true. And in fact, grace always precedes law in the scriptures. It always does. It always has. And so with the people of Israel, when God created his people, he called them, he rescues them from Egypt, from slavery. Or if you want to go even back further to when Abraham was called to begin with. Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper and God showed grace to him, showed favor to him. And so the first strand is grace. This is seen really clearly in Deuteronomy 7. You can write this down. I'll just read it to you. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 7, and it says this. This is God's word to Israel at their inception, you might say. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth, not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of people. He says, I chose you not because you're the best, not because you're the brightest, not because you're the biggest. I chose you because I chose you. I showed you grace. 
So the first part of God's program when he erected the wall, if you will, or built the people of Israel was grace. The second part was the law, or you might say obedience. He goes on in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 7 verse 11 says, you shall therefore, in response to that grace, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and the rules that I command you today. So you're talking about redemption from Israel, or excuse me, redemption from Egypt, and then Mount Sinai. Grace, law. These are the the pillars, if you will, that the nation of Israel was created by. This is God's plumb line. So he's saying, so let's see how you're doing with this. Are you a people of grace? Are you a people who are obedient? Let's see how this stuff plays out. And as you guys know, I mean, well, (laughs) if it played out well, there would be no book of Amos, right? Um, as we go on to see, you can read about this in 2 Kings 14. Jeroboam, in verse 24, it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, his father, which made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam the king, instead of following the pattern that God had laid out, he had learned a pattern that his father had laid out, and he followed in his father's pattern. So it wasn't God's plumb line, it was his father's plumb line, if you will, and he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this vision is given to him here. There's no relenting this particular time. There's no, please, please don't measure or don't judge us, it doesn't happen in this particular case. Because the reality is, is that at some point, all of us will stand before God and we will see how we measure up. Everyone will. Everyone will stand before. The word says that everyone will stand before God. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about the judgment that men will stand before God. If you want to go into the idea of, uh, like the quote we read earlier, that things not built upon prayer and about going to the Lord first are, are built on houses of sand. Well, 2 Corinthians 3 talks about wood, hay, and stubble. That there will be this time when that which we have built before the Lord will pass through the fire and that which is true and pure will survive. But that which is wood, hay, and stubble that is built maybe in the name of ministry but built because of our own pride or our own ambitions or our own sinful gain or whatever the case might be, those things will burn away and in the end we will have that which was pure, that which you might say measured up to the plumb line. And so he's saying to the people of Israel, how do you measure up? How's this going to go? Now, this is not a popular message. It is not popular to tell people that they will stand before God one day and have to give account. But I assure you, even when we're going through the text, and it says over and over, verse 1, the Lord showed me. Verse 2, O Lord God. Verse 4, the Lord. Verse 3, the Lord over and over and over. Lord, 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 Lord. It's the word Adonai, which means master, and it conveys the sense of authority. In other words, it's the one that you answer to. There's a lot of names for God. This one is the one that's used in this particular passage because it's meant to convey the fact that God is sovereign over all of his creation and over all of mankind. He is the master that man is accountable to. And so how will we measure up? It's not a popular word. It's even, maybe you might even say even less popular to say that to church people or Christians or maybe a better way of saying it would be religious people. Let's say that. And we see that in the text because this this vision is given. And look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel, and the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. 
And so Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Now remember, the nation of Israel split into two lands. You got the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Amos is from Judah, but he's gone into, at God's direction, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, to prophesy this judgment against, against this king. And so they're saying, look, king, this is what this guy's been saying. It is an unpopular message. And so the priest comes back to Amos and he says, just go home. Just get out of here. Go home. You go deal with your people. We'll deal with our people. Go back to the land of Judah, verse 13, and eat, or verse 12, and eat bread there. Prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Again, the master. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wives shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. And you yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. He makes it really clear. He's basically saying this. You don't want to be held accountable to God's standards. You don't want to have to answer to God, the master, Adonai, the king of kings. Well, this will be the end result for those who choose not to live in such a way that they believe they're going to actually answer to God. This is what's going to happen. It's going to lead to your destruction. And this is true today still, is it not? Those that choose to live in such a way that they don't believe that there is a God, they don't want to answer to God, they want to follow Satan's life from the very beginning, oh, God just doesn't want you to be like him. You can be like him. You don't have to answer to him anymore. You can be like him. And from the day one, we've been striving and striving and striving to be our own gods. And those who choose not to live in such a way, to not believe that they will have to answer to God one day, they're in trouble. You can ignore it all you want. He's still master. He's still Adonai. And judgment still there for sin. But the thing to remember for us tonight is that this is not a message that was given to the people, if you will, outside the church. This message was sent to who? God's people. It's God's people. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, he's saying, what are you doing and I think this is really important for us on a couple of levels. First of all, man, we should never live in such a way that we go, I'm covered by grace so I don't have to worry anymore. He's still God. He's Adonai. He's the master. He's the king of kings. And I, I know that when we get in heaven, we're going to be in front of Jesus. We're going to see him as the lamb being, just being slain. He says, I am your God. You will be my people. I know there is that loving father part of God. And that's real. I promise you that's real. But I still can't get away from the fact that in the scriptures, every single time anyone, New or Old Testament, comes into the presence of God, it's not like God and big bear hugs. They're on their face trembling in fear before the power of the great and mighty God. And I would recommend we live that way starting now. Build up some calluses so it doesn't hurt so much when we get there, maybe as a way of saying that. 
because he's still God. He's still Adonai. Now, he is going to love and he's gracious and all of those things, but he also is not to be trifled with. But the second part of this that's beautiful is this. doesn't matter how hard we try right now to go, okay, then I need to start living according to God's plumb line. Let's do it. Mercy and truth. I'm going to be a merciful person and I'm going to live according to truth. I'm going to be obedient. We, we, we know, right? Can't do it. And, and that's, you know what the beauty is? For those who've been adopted into God's family, when God's standing there, if you will, with the plumb line, he's not measuring you anymore. That plumb line, if you will, goes to who? Jesus Christ. Jeff, come into the kingdom. You measured up. What? Your plumb line is horribly crooked, God. Nope. Looks good to me. He's not going to measure my performance to decide whether I'm in or not. He's not going to measure my performance to decide whether I'm part of the family. The plumb line for those who put their faith in Jesus is put to Jesus because he is the one who measured up perfectly. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't possibly do, but he is also the avenue of grace and mercy poured out on us that brings us into the kingdom of God. So we should live in such a way that there is fear and trembling before God, literally desiring to obey his word because he is the master, but also at the same time in absolute humble gratitude, blown away by the grace of God that has adopted us into his family and says, you're no longer servants, you're my son. That's an amazing truth. And you go, but that's, there's tension in that, Jeff. How do I navigate those things? I assure you, just like we talked about wrath and mercy, I assure you, Mercy and truth are, as the scripture says, mercy and truth uphold the throne. They're an equal part of God's character. So in the same sense that God is this entity that we will want to bow before in fear, he is also, the Bible says what of him? God is what? Love. And so there's grace and mercy. And the Bible is also unapologetic about that tension. And so I'd say we should find a way to live in it as well. Amen? Let's stand and pray. God, we're thankful for your word. Will we, we, you make us thankful for correction? It's often hard in the moment to say that, Lord, but your correction, your discipline, and your law is designed to lead us into greater and greater joy. And so, Lord, there's a sense in which we should rejoice when we are corrected by you because you wouldn't correct us if you didn't love us. So, God, may we to a greater degree, more and more be conformed by your spirit into your image and live in accordance with your word. But Lord, at the same time, may we continue to just be in awe at your gospel. May we just continue to be blown away because we do not measure up. Your word says that we fall short, that our most righteous deeds are filthy rags before you, and yet because of your son, the perfect intersection of grace and truth Because the wrath that should have been for our sin on us was poured out on your son on the cross. Because of that, Lord, you now call us sons. So I pray, God, that would be what motivates us to want to live in obedience to you. And that at the same time, Lord, when condemnation should come for our inevitable failures, may we recognize that that condemnation is not rooted in you. That is Satan trying to keep us away from the loving arms of our Father and trying to stunt our growth, frankly. 
So God, when we fail, may we again return to the gospel. May we again return to the reality of the forgiveness you've given us. May we get up, may we dust off our knees. May you pick us up and dust them off for us. And may we continue, Lord, to just follow you to the best of our ability, empowered by your spirit until the day that you come and finally take away this sinful nature from us once and for all. Lord, we are thankful for your grace and mercy. Now, Lord, may we be people who are first applying these things to ourselves, Lord. May we not take a passage like this and and only think it points to the sin of the people outside the church, but, Lord, may we take this to heart that you desire to grow your church because you love us. And I pray that, Lord, we would have grace for those who need it. So, Lord, tonight I pray your blessing on everyone here. I pray, God, you would give them the ability to sleep well tonight, that they might arise early in the morning just as you did that they might spend time in prayer, spend time in your word, spend time with you, Lord, our heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Love you guys. Pray. We'll see you Sunday morning.